He's an 18-year-old man who's studying to be a commercial airline pilot. He has an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. And that's where this show comes in. This is Wanna Coffee Talk? Aris Martinez is focused on understanding the world around him. So he's grabbing a cup of coffee and sitting down to talk to the experts and professionals about what makes them tick. Everybody sits back, has some coffee, and the conversation gets real. It's real. This is Wanna Coffee Talk, and this is your host, Aris Martinez. Welcome to the show, Paul Vinash. Well, thank you very much. Very nice to be joining you, Aris. Very uh, kind introduction. It's a real pleasure for us, Paul. Thank you for coming along with us. So, Paul, um, we've just seen how into the topic we really are, but I'm sure there are plenty of folks, just like me, that would really want to know more about your daily grind and what you're working on at the moment. Well, I feel like one of the main hurdles that non-experts face when listening to such topics is that the amount of technicalities and difficulties that these areas usually embody is huge. That's why we hope you can help us spread some knowledge across the masses in a pretty simple way. So that's up to you, Paul. Maybe if we can start with the basics, what do you think is a virus from your side? Okay, so a virus is a, a very simple uh, biological entity. Um, Minimally, what a virus uh, contains is a piece of genetic material, um, RNA or DNA. Those are two very closely related molecules that carry genetic information. Um, the genome, as we call it, the viral genetic information is, is uh, wrapped up or encased in uh, viral proteins. Um, often we call those things capsids. Um, So minimally, a virus will be composed of a genome plus a protein coat. Um, but there are some viruses that, in addition to that protein coat, have uh, what we call a, a lipid envelope, a sort of a fatty skin around the outside of the, the protein and the RNA. And typically embedded in that uh, fatty skin are what we call envelope proteins. Those are proteins that allow the virus to attach to and infect uh, a target cell. So some people think of viruses as living things, and uh, in a sense that's true. Um, others think of them as, as non-living. Um, and the, the reality is that viruses sort of skirt that boundary between the living and the non-living. They have some of the features of living things, For example, they can replicate, make copies of themselves, they can evolve, they can change over time, mutate. Um, uh, that's a key feature of living, living things. But on the other hand, they lack some of the important other features of living things. For example, all the living things that we're used to dealing with are built from cells um, and have metabolism. Um, Those are things that viruses don't do. So they are, in a sense, um, the, at the border between living and non-living. The other thing about viruses is that if outside the confines of a cell, they are inert. They really don't do anything until 
they infect a cell. They ha have to be inside a cell to make use of all of the, the components of the, a living cell to enable their own replication. So you can sort of, in a sense, think of a virus particle as a bit like the seed of a plant. Um, on its own, it doesn't really do anything, and you, it would be hard to call it a living thing. But once you give a seed soil and water, or you give a virus a cell to propagate in, it behaves very much like, like a living thing. So uh, I think that, for me, sort of captures the essence of what, what a virus is. Right. So, and so what, with what I've been researching about your, your career, Paul, I just stumbled upon some terms which I was pretty unfamiliar with. Just take, for instance, um, what you refer to as tethering and MX2. So, which from what I've understood are two different um, HIV inhibitors that your lab discovered. So correct me if I'm wrong here. No, that's, that's correct. Um, a major interest of our group has been to find, the, find genes and proteins that hosts the targets of viruses in code. Um, uh, genes and proteins whose job it is to inhibit virus replication. Uh, you can imagine that being infected by a virus uh, sometimes is inconsequential. And sometimes it's, it's really not very good for the host. Hosts get sick and they die um, sometimes. Uh, and um, in evolutionary terms, being infected by a virus often inhibits one's ability to reproduce. And so um, viruses have imposed evolutionary selection pressures on their hosts that have caused them to evolve many, many mechanisms to uh, combat, to try and defeat viruses. So we have complex immune systems, but we also have a set of genes that we've spent a lot of time discovering and working on, genes that encode proteins whose, whose major job is basically to get in the way of virus replication. So MX2, one of the genes that you referred to just a second ago, um, that gene encodes a protein um, that sits on the outside of the nucleus of cells and so when HIV infects a cell, it, it likes to insert, or it, it actually has to insert its genetic material into the host DNA that's contained within the nucleus. And MX2's job is to guard the entrance to the nucleus and in so doing inhibit the ability of HIV to, to, and other viruses to enter the nucleus and propagate itself. So it's, it's, that's one example of a number of proteins that interfere with virus replication. Um, tetherin, the other example you mentioned, that's a protein that sits on the outside of cells. And so when HIV completes its life cycle, the last step is that the virus particle buds through the outer membrane of a cell to go and infect a new cell. And at that point, tetherin attempts to intervene and it inserts itself into the skin of the newly budding HIV particle, um, but also leaves part of itself in the membrane of the, that's the infected cell that the HIV particle is attempting to leave. And in so doing, it traps the virus particle uh, on the surface of the cell, 
uh, and then basically that cell sacrifices itself, retaining those HIV particles so that they can't then go on to, to infect uh, new cells. Um, but even though cells have evolved these elaborate, complex defense mechanisms, viruses in their, um, in their way uh, evolve ways to defeat the host defenses. So, <laughs> for example, in the, in the case of tethering, HIV has a gene, uh, it's called uh, VPU, and the product of that gene, its main job, its main reason for existing is essentially to destroy the tethering protein that hosts make to trap viruses. So there's this constant evolutionary arms race between hosts and viruses. Hosts evolve defenses to inhibit viruses. Viruses uh, either evade them or evolve, evolve countermeasures to try and destroy the host defenses. And a large part of virology these days is understanding those evolutionary battles between uh, the host and virus. And that, that's a large part of where I've spent my career studying those, those battles. So at the moment, would you say um, you have an answer to why or to what makes a virus evolve by natural selection? Or there isn't really an answer to that question? There's not one answer to that question. There are many, many answers. So um, we always have to remember viruses don't, don't really have a purpose other than to replicate. Okay, right. so um, if a virus has a certain set of machinery that allows it to make copies of itself in a, a human host cell, uh, then it can... Um, It can then diversify, um, make mutations, uh, change itself, and then by random chance, those changes allow it to adopt perhaps a new range of target cells. Okay, so um, the evolutionary forces acting on viruses to to change, to adapt, to evolve are manifold. I, I guess you can break them down into two main categories, though. One is um, evolutionary changes that allow a virus to infect a new cell type or a new species um, or a new, completely new class of hosts. That's one, one aspect, is just exploring evolutionary niches in the same way that... that um, Uh, organisms evolved to exploit various ecological niche, niches in the in the in the wider world. That's one set of evolutionary pressures. The other set of evolutionary pressures are, are sort of more akin to the predator-prey type of interaction. Um, hosts, in in many cases, as I mentioned, uh, they it's deleterious for them to harbor viruses. And so they have immune systems and immune defenses that whose job it is to, to stop virus replication. And when they're successful, the virus has to evolve to evade them. And that, that can happen in, in the way, ways that I've just described for things like tethering and MX2 by acquiring new functions. Or it can happen in ways just by changing the binding site for an antibody, for example. Um, antibodies are key components of our immune systems 
that attach to viruses and, and inhibit their replication. Um, viruses can change their sequences by random chance to avoid those antibodies. So there's the, the exploration of ecological niches, new host cells or species, but there's also the avoidance of the um, inhibitors of their replication. And both of those things uh, together constitute the evolutionary forces on viruses that allow them to, not allow them, force them to diversify and, and change. That makes sense. So you also refer to um, different functions. There are host functions that are manipulated or exploited by viruses. So when you talk about those, could you really put an example on how these viruses can really exploit our host um, cells or functions? Absolutely. So, so let's, let's, let's again take HIV as an example. It's right. by no means the only example, but um, HIV uh, has a genome that's made of RNA, right? That's, so that's a molecule that's, that's quite closely related to DNA, but it's different significantly uh, chemically. When it enters the cell, uh, the virus uses an enzyme that it itself carries. It's an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, very important enzyme that copies the viral genome from RNA into DNA. Okay. That DNA then enters the nucleus of the host cell and actually becomes inserted into the genome of the host cell. So that sequence of events that I've just described to you. Um, Reverse transcriptase copying from RNA to DNA, the DNA becoming inserted into the DNA of the host cell. That's characteristic of a, a whole group of viruses that we call retroviruses. Now, once the retrovirus has inserted its own genome into the DNA of the host cell, it is an intimate and integral part of that host cell. Um, and because of that, it can exploit a whole range of host cell functions in order to propagate itself. For example, um, the viral DNA behaves essentially like a host gene. And every gene that's present in a host in the form of DNA has to be made into RNA in order for it to be what we call expressed. Um, the central dogma of molecular biology is DNA um, is copied to RNA and then translated into protein. All the genes in our genome uh, are expressed, uh, not all the genes, most of the genes in our genome are expressed in that way. And HIV, once it's inserted into our host DNA, essentially follows that path. It behaves like a Host gene. So it uses the same machinery to be copied from DNA into RNA. It uses the same machinery for that RNA to be translated into proteins. The key thing about HIV, it's basically a gene in the human genome, then a gene for making new HIV particles. So in a very real sense, it becomes an intimate part of that, um, that, that particular cell. Um, that whole family of viruses, retroviruses, do that. And there's actually a very 
very um, interesting extension of that idea. So retroviruses have been around for um, probably hundreds of millions, certainly tens of millions of years. And they're, they're a very diverse group of viruses. And sometimes members of that family of viruses have infected cells that either are or will become part of what we call the germline. That's the cells that make sperm and egg in the case of mammals. And so our genome, the genomes of you and I and every human on this planet is littered with the remnants of old retroviruses, viruses that in the deep evolutionary time infected those cells and have now become part of who we are. So we are not simply descended from apes and before that monkeys, we're also descended from viruses. Um, hmm. And so the relationship between hosts and viruses is very intimate. Um, viruses are dependent on host cells for many parts of their replication cycle. And now we humans are dependent on ancient viruses for, for our continued survival. That's pretty interesting, Paul. So um, just moving aside one moment, you were referring to um, those old viruses, to say in a way that those ancient viruses inside of our current bodies right now, and they really make a part of what we are. Um, would you say that a virus, even though it's ancient, how long can it take for that virus to be inside a body? To say it in a way like, how long can a virus last in someone's body, even though it is not infectious? Okay, so, so there, there's two, two very different things here. So the example that I just talked about, the retroviruses, once their DNA has inserted into our genome, that insertion is permanent. That will, right. um, except in extraordinarily rare circumstances, that, that cell will always be infected. And if that cell is part of the germline, that all the descendants of that person will have that virus basically forever. Um, wow. Now, other, other viruses that have a very different life cycle that don't insert their, their genetic material into the genomes of um, the host cell, then their sort of lifespan, um, if they're not replicating, if you're talking about individual genetic elements, their lifespan can be massively variable, okay? So herpes viruses, for example, they have uh, DNA genomes. They infect cells that don't divide often. Um, they are lifelong infections. And the individual DNA molecules, we don't know exactly how long they last, but they can almost certainly last for years, perhaps decades. There are other types of viruses, um, viruses such as the common cold viruses that have an, an RNA genome that replicate very fast. Um, their lifespan, if they're not replicating uh, in a host, is very short on the periods of probably hours to days. So it spans the whole spectrum of timescales, how long a virus can remain viable, as it were, in a host. And when I say viable, I mean in terms of their genetic material remaining intact and able, given the right stimulus and circumstance, to generate new infectious particles. Right, Paul. Thank you for making that crystal clear. I think it's now time to address some of the 
of your current research regarding the novel coronavirus. I've seen your latest work um, examines the whether a mutated coronavirus could pose a problem for antibody therapy or vaccines. What can you tell us about that? Right. So um, earlier this year, Uh, the lives of many virologists changed dramatically, and and ours was uh, one such group who who changed our research program um, almost entirely from working on HIV to working on the SARS coronavirus two. Um, so we have a a group of laboratories here at Rockefeller with a particular set of skills, um, and we essentially got together and decided one of the, the most important things or the best way we could apply our skills to tackle the pandemic was to discover and uh, bring to the clinic uh, monoclonal antibodies. These are um, antibodies that we have um, cloned the genes from, from people who have been infected with SARS coronavirus 2. Um, you clone the genes for those antibodies And you can then manufacture those antibodies in large quantities and, in principle, simply inject them into people as antiviral agents. So antiviral, uh, antibodies, the, one of the main ways that they work is to bind to the outside of virus particles and stop those virus particles from uh, infecting cells. So when people are infected with, with viruses, they typically generate such antibodies. Their immune systems recognize the viruses and um, begin to make these antibodies. Um, so what we did was to essentially clone the most potent of those antibodies and uh, basically take them forward um, as potential antiviral agents. So we began this uh, with our colleagues here at Rockefeller, um, Michelle Nussenswag and Charlie Rice, are two of my colleagues who, who, were, um, who we joined with in this endeavor. And very rapidly, we, we identified um, a number of antibodies that uh, are very, very potent inhibitors of virus replication. Um, you need tiny, tiny amounts of these antibodies to stop stop the virus from infecting cells. And our, our main contribution to this effort was to, to build um, uh, basically recombinant viruses that could be used to screen through many of these antibodies to identify the most potent ones. Um, and then subsequently to discover how the virus might become resistant to such um, antibodies. And I'll, I'll get into that In, in a second. But just, just to sort of tell you where we are with the antibodies, those antibodies have been discovered. Uh, a number of groups have discovered very potent antibodies. They're now going through the sort of preclinical process. They're being manufactured at large scale, and they'll be going into clinical trials um, in the next couple of months. Okay. So um, as I told you just a little while ago, Um, one of the, the main evolutionary forces acting on viruses is our inhibitors, inhibitors that hosts make. And antibodies are a crucial component of that host defense. And so while we are making these antibodies to use as medicines, um, we also have to try and look into the future and try to anticipate how the virus will 
react when it sees those antibodies as it will do when they go into the clinic and are administered to people who are at risk of being infected or or who have been infected. And so um, it's inevitable with any antiviral medicine, drug, antibody, that it is possible to make viruses that are resistant to it. Um, viruses, as I've mentioned, are so um, genetically plastic that they can overcome, I wouldn't say any um, inhibitor that one throws at them, but a large fraction of the inhibitors that one can devise to inhibit viruses, viruses will evolve to be resistant. And these antibodies that we've made are no different. Uh, the virus, in principle, can become resistant to them. So um, what we've done most recently is to try and look uh, and select in the laboratory, put the virus against the antibody in a cell culture dish, and then watch what happens to the virus as it uh, explores ways to become resistant to those antibodies. And so we've identified key places on the envelope protein of the SARS coronavirus 2 that change when we uh, ask the antibodies to inhibit the virus, okay? And we've identified those changes. We've um, taken a list of antibodies and shown that each one um, uh, forces the virus to change its sequence in a particular way. And so what we're doing to overcome that is to develop cocktails of antibodies. So for example, a mixture of two antibodies that both of which potently inhibit the virus, but if you target two different places on the virus with the antibodies, then the virus has to, in order to escape that therapy, it has to change not one thing about itself, but two things about itself to evade those antibodies. And that's, of course, very much more difficult for for a virus to do. And so um, what we're doing is exploiting those differences to devise antibody cocktails in terms of developing a, a combination therapy um, in very much the same philosophical way as combination therapies have been put together for tackling viruses like HIV-1, um, combination therapies for cancers, for example. The higher the more changes your target has to make to evade the therapy, the more difficult it is for, for that evolutionary leap to be made by the thing you're targeting. And so that's what we're doing now with these uh, antibody mixtures. I see. Well, um, despite that, that work, because it is a very, very intense work, I guess, um, there's some people that may claim that this futuristic or what we're waiting for, like the COVID-19 vaccine, will be anticipated like with not as much as testing that could have gone through a normal vaccine. So so we remain skeptical about its long-term side effects. Or would you as a scientist take a shot of such a vaccine? Because I've been talking to different people, which may say, well, I mean, it's a vaccine. It's, it's, it's a great, um, you know, advance in, in science etc but well i think i will remain skeptical so that's some that's a, a comment that i've been hearing quite a lot these days what are your thoughts about that so um you know the vaccine development process is 
is going on now. It's going at a much accelerated pace compared to what uh, has gone on in the past. But it's very, very important to recognize that the the accelerated pace, um, and I can speak specifically about what's going on in the United States and in the UK because I'm familiar with that. I understand that um, other countries may make decisions about the the process that uh, vaccines go through for um, assuring their safety and efficacy uh, before being given to to very large numbers of people. But what I what I know is going on in the United States and in in the in the UK is is basically the standard way that vaccines are evaluated for efficacy and safety, and essentially what's being cut out are the 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 bureaucratic delays. And so um, there's a, a very standard way by which uh, vaccines are evaluated. There is phase one, two, and three clinical trials. Phase one is simply to evaluate safety, um, typically. Um, and it involves a small number of people who are, who are given the vaccine and they're examined for side effects. And if everything looks good there, typically, then there ensues a delay while enough vaccine is made to enable a phase two clinical trial. And a phase two clinical trial will involve larger numbers of people and typically has two components to it. There's a safety component. You're looking for uh, side effects in in, uh, a larger number of people, but you also begin to look for signs of efficacy. Does the vaccine generate the types of immune response, for example, that you would expect uh, to to be protective? Um, And if everything looks good there, then there's another delay while you manufacture very much larger amounts of the the vaccine um, uh, before you go into a phase three clinical trial, which is a much, much, much larger, involving typically thousands, even tens of thousands of people who are given given the vaccine um, and then followed for a period of time. And, and there, what you're really looking for is, does the vaccine work? And so you have to vaccinate enough people so that by chance, um, perhaps a, a, enough of a fraction of them will naturally encounter the virus. Um, and you, you would give the vaccine to half, for example, and not give the vaccine to another half, and measure how frequently infections occur in the half that were infected, sorry, were vaccinated versus the half that were not infected. Now, if that phase three clinical trial is successful, then there's another delay, and this is a much longer delay, while you make enough vaccine to vaccinate the population, okay? Now we're talking hundreds of thousands, millions of doses. And so those those delays make the vaccine development process last years. And this is before we've even got into um, reporting and paperwork and so on and so forth. What's, what's really being accelerated in, in response to the current pandemic is that even when the vaccines that are now mostly in phase two trials, the ones that look most promising, we're already manufacturing 
the doses that would be required to vaccinate the population en masse uh, uh, post phase three. So that takes a lot of money, okay? And so we're risking hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars, making a bet that some of these vaccines will work, okay? It might be that somewhere in phase two or phase three, you find out no, the vaccine's actually not going to work that well, or there's this side effect that doesn't look good, in which case that money will have been blown. But what you're buying with that bet is um, a curtailment of the delay. So when you have that phase three signal that shows that the vaccine work, works, you're ready to go. Okay. So I would be absolutely happy to take any vaccine that has been through phase one, two, three, and has shown an efficacy signal. Um, it, the actual time between discovery and marketing is, is of no consequence to me. Um, the only thing I care about is, is, the vac is, has the vaccine been demonstrated to be safe and demonstrated to be efficacious? And that, that basically is the phase three trial and how quickly you get to that phase three trial is, is what has been dramatically shortened in response, in response to the pandemic. The actual process of vaccine evaluation really hasn't been changed uh, to any significant degree. Right. So it's just cutting, cutting off the different bureaucratic delays that you've just spoke about. Right. And, how... and financially imposed, you know, with, with, you know, with any vaccine, there's a financial risk involved. Yeah. These are companies that are, are making these things, and we're essentially insulating them from financial risk. Right. So that being clear, um, what explanation do you have for asymptomatic people, like how it evolves with SARS-CoV-2? And from a scientific point of view, how would you describe that phenomenon? So, so what we have to um, get used to is the concept that um, the evolutionary pressures on a virus are essentially to replicate and to be transmitted from one host to another. The virus has no, um, no interest. And, you know, I, we try not to anthropomorphize uh, viruses. They have no intention, no thinking involved, but they sometimes sort of behave as if they do, right? So that if, you, if, a, if a virus could think, its thoughts would be, I need to replicate and I need to get to the next host. Even if a virus could think, it would have no thoughts for whether it caused disease or sickness in any of its hosts. Okay, so the, the concept that um, uh, illness and transmission are linked is a false premise, okay? Now, sometimes the, the virus causes disease simply by virtue of the volume of its, its replication. So when a virus infects a cell, uh, often that cell is going to die. And if enough cells in a person die, that, that virus can make, make that person sick. Um, conversely, sometimes it's the immune response to the virus um, that makes the person sick. So, for example, if, virus, if a cell is infected with, the vir with a virus, then our immune system has cells that 
come around and uh, recognize those virus-infected cells. They start making all sorts of um, chemicals, things that we call cytokines, um, chemokines, and the immune system also kills the cells that, that the, the virus has infected. Okay, So there is only a partial linkage between how much virus there is in somebody and whether that person is sick. Okay, So if you look at a virus like SARS-CoV-2, for example, the, the amount of virus in a person, let, let's say they, they acquire an infection on day one, um, the virus infects cells. It goes from one cell to a few more cells and a few more cells to more cells. It's sort of spreading within that person as it goes. The virus population is expanding. And the amount of virus in that person is ramping up over a period of days. And it's, it's peaking, you know, somewhere around five, seven, eight days post-infection. Now, at the same time, the immune system is responding um, and some cells are beginning to die. Uh, and there's somewhat of a delay, a time gap between that, um, the, what we call the pathological consequences of infection, the cell death, the immune response, the cytokines, the chemokines, the things that make us feel sick. Um, there's a, there's a disconnect between how much virus there is in a person and the symptoms associated uh, with, the, with the virus infection that, that are at least part in part due to the immune response. So you can have quite a lot of virus replicating inside you, and so there'll be plenty of virus in your saliva, nasal secretions, and still feel pretty well. Um, in, most piece, in most people, um, not everybody, but in most people, they will start to feel sick um, uh, a few days later, but um, they have already been infectious for some time before they uh, begin to feel sick. Okay, you know, in in the case of SARS coronavirus two, there there is a subset of people who never actually get sick. Um, it's if you look at them closely, right? If you put them in a um, a chest X-ray, for example, in many of those people, you can see some of the the symptoms of of viral infection. You know the the sort of classic chest X-rays that I'm sure many of people have seen on TV. But it, in some people, it never gets to the point of of clinical disease. Um, but nevertheless, those pe some of those people can have large amounts of virus in them and be able to spread the virus uh, to other people. So I guess what, what might confuse people is that is the sort of there is a connection between virus replication and disease, but it's not, not a very intimate connection. You can have plenty of virus in you and in your saliva um, without actually feeling sick. Um, and so that's why um, asymptomatic transmission uh, occurs. Um, it's not an exact relationship, but how infectious you are to another person is 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 very likely closely related to how much virus you have inside you. It's not really connected to how sick you feel. Right. So, Paul, this is my last question. See if you can answer. How are we going to reach herd immunity? And what if people just avoid taking the vaccine that we just spoke about? Um, before um, 
will this be a determinant factor when trying to achieve that herd immunity that we're striving for, or will it not be a determinant factor? Right. So this this really calls for crystal ball. Um, um, I think the some of the vaccines that are currently in development will be successful, and if we are if we do our jobs and get those vaccines deployed to large enough numbers of people within the next um, six to twelve months, then I am reasonably confident that. Uh, at least in the developed world, we'll be able to get to um, population or herd-based immunity um, using vaccines. Um, and so, of course, the, the concept of herd immunity means that, that basically you be an individual person being immune, that imparts benefit to the people that they come in contact with, right? So if, if I'm immune um, and I get um, I come into contact with somebody that's infected, um, but I don't get infected myself because I'm immune, uh, and then I don't uh, pass the virus on to my family. My family members have been the beneficiaries of my immunity, and so that that's the, the concept of herd immunity is that on a population level. So, um, you know, typically if sort of 70-80% of a population are immune, um, then the other 30% basically get protected from the virus by those people, those 70% that have, have uh, acquired immunity. So you can get to a herd immunity um, via the virus sweeping through uh, the population through an immunity being acquired by natural infection, um, or preferably, in this case, you get to herd immunity via um, vaccination. You know what what's what's going to happen over the next twelve months really depends very much on how um, people behave. Um, we could we could in principle I think get to herd immunity via natural infection, but of course that there will be a very heavy price to pay um, if that's the route that we go because um, obviously. Um, as the virus spreads through the population, it's going to be incredibly difficult to say, okay, we'll get herd immunity by only young people being infected, but we'll protect um, the elderly, the, the real, really the vulnerable uh, portion of the population. Um, and though there will be a, a, a huge death toll uh, involved with the acquisition of herd immunity via natural infection. And I think societies have made the very reasonable judgment that that is ethically indefensible. Okay? We, can't, we can't sacrifice uh, millions of people um, uh, at, at the altar of attain, attaining herd immunity via natural infection. And so um, if we're successful in developing vaccines over the next uh, six to 12 months, we'll be able to get to that, that level of immunity, population-based immunity, while avoiding all those uh, millions of deaths. And that's what basically what, what we are trying to do. And I, I honestly, I think it's achievable. Uh, I'm actually very optimistic about the, the current crop of vaccine candidates. And, you know, uh, don't hold me to this, but I think um, this time next year, many people will be immunized with demonstrably safe and effective vaccines.
that's a prediction, perhaps a brave one, but I think that's what's going to happen. That's pretty encouragement, encouraging to hear from your side, uh, Paul. And as you said, hopefully we'll get a vaccine and or any kind of immunity to kind of get to our normal lifestyles as we've been doing for the last year. Well, you know, with the COVID thing, it really messed up the way we live and oh, yes. <laughs> everything, basically, the society. And one of the aspects that really, I believe, um, could have been done better or maybe worse, depending on who you look at, maybe lockdowns. And from from what I've understood, um, even though the natural immunity or herd immunity that you were um, speaking about, like the one that was not really desirable because of the death tolls that will be achieving, um, in a way, it's avoided avoided by the the same lockdown, right? Because if we stop people getting into contact with different people, what we're what we are basically doing is avoiding that herd immunity too. But you made it clear how that herd immunity or the natural one could really be a, a risk for um, you know, because at the end of the day, it's just getting people infected. So it's it's pretty, I said, optimistic to to think it in that way. And hopefully it is it is true and it, it falls in in that same way yeah. hopefully there, there's another there is another aspect to this where another i think quite powerful argument why societies shouldn't attempt to acquire herd immunity via natural infection and that is we're increasingly beginning to see that there are long-term consequences of this viral infection um even in younger people, you know, the, the young population that that uh, typically don't have don't have the same death rate as uh, people who are older or with uh, comorbidities. But even in in young healthy adults, there's a significant fraction that you know they they recover, but it's not clear that in every case that the recovery is complete. And you know, this is a new virus. We we really don't know what the long-term sequelae of, of infection uh, is going to be. And so, you know, um, it's going to be somewhat unclear when all the dust settles, when we have a vaccine and uh, we no longer worry about SARS-CoV-2, what the impact on society is going to have been in terms of the the loss of a, a large number of people versus the economic impact and so on and so forth. Um, we, we really, in terms of how we tackle this, we're making our best guess as to what the best way forward is. And uh, I honestly believe that um, keeping, keeping, bearing the economic costs of having a, a reduced um, activity in society, business activities, so on and so forth, um, school closures in, in many instances, I think it's going to be worth it um, because the, we, we don't know for sure, but the, what the impact on society would be for letting this virus run rampant um, through the whole population is is you know, we can make some guesses, but I think they might be substantially worse than we imagine. I see. So, because um, what are the odds maybe of just um, having to learn how to live with this virus in case it is not completely eradicated? Because 
take for instance the HIV one, as as I've been researching about you said, maybe just maybe seven hundred thousand I believe deaths every single year. So it's a pretty high amount of deaths, the ones we're yes. facing right now. What are the odds of happening the same with COVID nineteen? So that, that that's a very interesting question because we there I think will come a point where we don't worry about it anymore, but there still will be a death toll attached to it. Okay. So we're we're sort of there with a virus like influenza. Okay. We there are tens of thousands of people die from influenza each year. Um, and they're mostly mostly um, elderly um, people, um, but but we have sort of come to learn to live with that level of death as not something we accept. We obviously try to keep that number down uh, as much as possible, but it it doesn't have the same sort of pervasive effect on society as um, as the 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 much larger death toll that would ensue if if SARS-CoV-2 runs rampant um, through society. So you know, even when we have an effective vaccine, um, which I'm sure we will do, there will be you know, as you've mentioned, a segment of society that um, uh, the anti-vax community, for example, that w won't take the vaccine. Um, they will effectively parasitize the herd immunity that the rest of us provide by taking the vaccine. Um, but they will encounter the virus and there will be a death toll associated with that, um, with that um, um, lack of desire to, to take a vaccine. So I think this virus is quite likely to be with, with us for the foreseeable future. Um, but will be kept kept under control, largely through vaccination. Um, we may get to a situation where um, children are frequently infected with this virus uh, in early childhood and acquire immunity um, through natural infection. And so when they become reinfected as they get older, um, that immunity that they acquired uh, as, as young children may protect them as they get older and older. Coronaviruses um, that are not SARS-CoV-2, there are um, a few of them that circulate in human populations. You know, it could be that thousands of years ago is when those viruses first crossed into humans, as SARS-CoV-2 is doing now, that much the same scenario that we're seeing playing out with SARS-CoV-2 previously happened with those coronaviruses, um, but yet after those viruses had infected enough people, they become so, became so common that um, nearly everyone got infected in, in young childhood and then built up immunity throughout their life, such as they see, so that they ceased to become uh, dangerous. Um, that is an entirely plausible scenario for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but my suspicion is that we will be we'll be controlling this largely through through vaccination in the not too distant future, um, and there will be um, some low level of infection and some low level of death associated with that virus um, 
but but that's at a much lower level than we're currently experiencing. And in that scenario, it it will still be dangerous, but we won't fear it so much because it'll be so much rarer. Right. That really makes sense, Paul. And what I just really want to end up by saying that, as I said to you like at the beginning of the interview, I really think there's there's a need for international collaboration and everyone should be really kind of having the same goal in this in this situation, which in a way we, we do have because just everyone or every scientist should be uh, really striving for that immunity and that vaccine or the way to end up with this with, with this virus. But you know, you, you have different um communities, maybe just engineers which um are experts in um, maybe the transmission dynamics of different fluids and they are do not agree with the way that um SARS CoV two transmits. Maybe they do think that it's via droplets, but also maybe just by staying in the same room and different kind of um weird statements which um from their point of view make sense, but there's no um correlation or there's no agreement between different sectors, if that makes sense. So because take for instance the, the beginning of the pandemic where every single country was saying different things when it comes to the use of masks and how beneficial or not beneficial they could be. And until we kind of reached an agreement, there's a pretty huge amount of time delay, which could maybe if it if if it was done better, could it really improve the situation? So I from what I know uh, there's some simulation uh, simulations going on like one before the pandemic which it's well, I mean the goal should be to kind of act all in the same way and kind of put our all of our efforts in the same direction so as to basically work our way up in the virus in an effective and mm, in a way which less deaths are involved. So, I mean, it's novel. It's a novel coronavirus. It's something that we haven't seen in for decades. And according to some figures like Bill Gates, he was claiming that something that like this would happen in the foreseeable future. And it has happened because maybe just a matter of chances. But the there's some basics of the virus that I think should, should be, that are, I feel like there's some sectors which do not agree in the basics and working our way up from those basics, like the transmission dynamics or maybe the origin of the same virus, which has led to a lot of discussions, is something that is still um, yet to be, not to say discovered, but agreeing with most of the sectors that play this, this, this game into how our COVID evolves. Wow, yes. There's a a lot of issues to uh, unpack there. Um, I think one could sort of um, draw all those threads together by by saying that when there's a new virus uh, entering the human population, we're really at the edge of knowledge. And there is a lot of unknowns and there are a lot of... um, experts making their best guesses. There are a lot of uh, semi-experts making their slightly less informed guesses. And there are a lot of people who are politically motivated um, coming 
giving their opinions that are that are essentially uh, uninformed and so i think that has generated a lot of confusion about um things like the use of masks um you know whether uh, droplet or aerosol transmission dominates um how the virus spreads um the sort of what i the origins of the virus and so on and so forth. So, so I, I have my opinions about all of those issues. Um, um, I am somewhat of an expert in some of those areas, but I'm also dependent on how much I trust the opinions of, of other experts uh, in those areas. And then um, sort of superimposed on that is that Experts who are giving their opinions um, are often motivated to 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 give an opinion that they think will have the will have a public health impact that's that's beneficial. Um, so the masks thing, for example, um, that that's sort of a classic. Um, I don't want to say screw up, but um, there was a lot of confusion generated by well-meaning people uh, and the wisdom of the path that they took with with hindsight can be questioned. Um, so there's it, it's continues to be a controversial issue. Um, the bottom line is when when the when the pandemic started, there was pretty good evidence that wearing masks would block influenza transmission. Right, that that was sort of uh, uncontroversial. Right, if you if you've got influenza, you wear a mask, um, uh, and the the person who's a candidate recipient of virus from you also wears a mask. You you can absolutely massively drop the the rate of influenza transmission um but of course if you're if you're so motivated you can say well that's not SARS-CoV-2 right so that's really not evidence that masks will inhibit SARS-CoV-2 transmission and you know I would say yes okay strictly speaking that's correct but the modes of transmission of these viruses while not identical are quite closely related so it's pretty likely that wearing masks is going to uh, curtail transmission of of this virus. So, but on top of that, um, when the virus came to the United States, for example, there was a, there were concerns, huge concerns, valid concerns about the shortage of masks um, that really were needed to protect uh, healthcare uh, professionals. And so there were legitimate fears that if we if people were advised to wear masks if the entire population was advised to wear masks that there would be not enough masks for uh doctors and nurses who 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 need them and if all the doctors and nurses got sick then who is going to look after the people who the other people who got sick and so you know there was a, a calculation made there that would that advice to wear masks shouldn't shouldn't be given you know, these are not straightforward issues to to tackle. Um, and now we have a you know a, a, a 
I would say actually not much better idea about whether mass curtailed SARS-CoV-2 transmission, but you know, deep, deep down inside, scientists who can evaluate the evidence from other viral systems, from all sorts of, of uh, um, um, lines of inquiry will say, yeah, it's, it's very likely that masks um, curtail transmission. And you know, consequently, the advice is now that we have enough masks is that everyone should, should wear them. Um, so that's one side of things, the sort of the, the, the knowledge gap um, based on this being a new virus, how much you can extrapolate from what you already know to this new situation and combine that with what's actually the best thing to tell the public in terms of getting on top of this epidemic. And you don't always end up with the same answer when you consider those those sort of different inputs into the into the into the, the decision process, um, I guess the, sort of the other thing to say is even the experts in this situation, um, you could almost say there's no such thing as an expert because this is this was a. a a, a situation that was unprecedented in most people's lifespan. I've never lived, I'm, you know, you call me an expert. I've never lived through anything like this. Um, and on top of that, I, I do feel there was something of a, um, denial is not the right word. Um, arrogance probably isn't the right word either, but some combination of those um, not very helpful impulses um, worsened the situation. So you'll recall in late January, early February, we watched on television as um, the authorities in Wuhan built hospitals around the city in, within a period of 10 days. Okay, and we, we, we watched that and thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, that seems a rather curious thing to do. What, what, what exactly is going on here? And um, in reality, those hospitals were um, served two purposes, not just to treat the people who were sick, but they also served to isolate the people who had the virus, but who had mild disease, who really didn't need to be hospitalized, but it served to isolate those people from the remainder of the population so they wouldn't transmit the virus to others. And now look at the situation in Wuhan. There's virtually no virus in that city. So the wisdom of doing what at the time seemed a very curious thing to be doing, um, you know, that the Chinese authorities absolutely made the right move in that situation. Uh, we in the West have just continued to drop the ball when it comes to making uh, the right decisions uh, in terms of, of where to put resources to really get on top of this pandemic. Um, perhaps the biggest mistake that we made in the United States was the complete snafu over uh, competently and quickly rolling out the ability to test um, people. So. So here in New York City, for example, um, it, with hindsight, it was very clear that the virus had infected quite large numbers of people before we had really any ability to test. And 
we so easily could have got that process in place before before um, the virus even got here. And so, you know, I've, that's a bit of a uh, bit of a rant, but and I've almost <laughs> forgotten what your question was. But I think, um, you know, people people have to, in a sense, trust experts, but um, at the same time, experts are not infallible, and they have especially not been infallible during this pandemic. I think those are pretty deep words and wise words to say, as you just mentioned all the way through. Because you you see, like Chinese authorities given quite a strict mm, measures in place, such as very strict lockdowns, which yeah. in the West, as as you said, it wasn't really the case. Although there were some countries which had some kind of strict lockdowns, but it, it is interesting to see how countries in South America which tend to have a, a pretty, according to different statistics I'm talking, because I obviously haven't been living in South America, but they, they claim to have quite um strong um lockdowns, which haven't really make, made a lot of effect, to say it in a way. The number of, in, well, at least in the positives and uh, the number of um COVID deaths, charts that they have. So I guess it's also down to the local people that they live in those communities and how they take the virus. Because even though you can have really, really strict lockdowns, it all boils down to how people accept those those lockdowns and if they are obviously accepting and, you know, and making sure that, that things are made. And if people are just going out to the streets and protesting, etc., um that can actually pose a risk and and it is but there's still some 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 situations right now maybe in the united states with different protests which we do not know the level in which those protests doesn't matter the topic or the it could be about virtually anything could really pose a risk in how the virus is is spreading because just take, for instance, the Black Lives Matter ones, because those are the ones happening right now in, in America. But it, it did happen the same in Spain with the feminist movement in during the 8th of March. And and those were uh, a period in which um, local authorities and, and the government knew about the, the virus, but it wasn't really a thing at that moment. And that protest um, came along and it was finally done which a lot of people go into that protest without keeping any single measure because it wasn't a thing at that moment. And But governments, uh, well, the Spanish government knew the, the different risks that could, that could come with um, having that protest taking place. And it basically ended up proving how that was one of the main spots where people got infected. So I think... If we apply measures, they should really be applied to a general and consistent way, rather than, as you said, politically motivated um, speeches, regardless of the party that we're talking of. So, but again, it's the the level in which we um, put and the priorities that we set as a as a world and as a country. What goes beyond our 
safety and what goes in a higher level than our own safety because maybe it's the economic side or maybe it's the political side. Because right now with the elections in the United States, we're seeing um, more people getting into the streets and maybe more movements, which I don't know because I don't live there. But that's the impression that it gives me or maybe with the protest that I was mentioning. And yeah, I mean, if we all have the same and we all have um, stick to some security measures that should be fine and that shouldn't be a big deal. But if we don't, then you're just having, well, not, I mean, not, not speaking about violence on those protests, because it's obvious that there's some violence going on, but just about the virus. So that's, you know, just my point of view when it comes to complying with those measures. And if we do comply with them, let's do it in a, all in the same way and kind of get to the same point. So maybe if you want to just add some comments to that last point, that's okay. Yeah, so this is sort of um, skirting at the edges of epidemiology and politics, which is um, slightly outside my area <laughs> of expertise, but but I, I, I can comment. I mean, I, you know, we, I live in New York City, which um, for some weeks was really the global epicenter of the epidemic. And we had a very strict, um, strict lockdown, and it worked. It worked incredibly well, actually. We, um, the number of uh, cases and deaths in New York City now is is extremely low, and society has, in a, in a some sort of way, returned to some level of normality. It's it's far from normal, um, but there is economic activity. People are working. It, as I say, it's at a much um, um, lower level, um, and the, but the number of cases has remained I- extremely low, um, and that 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 remained true even through the um, the the protests that that took part took place here, where uh, large numbers of people gathered um, in the open air, you know, mostly but not entirely wearing masks. Um, so I, I think I think. What one? There's a couple of things we have to bear in mind. One is that there's a there's unknowns, right? So um, we still, I think, don't have a very good idea, um, although we're beginning to get that idea of what the risk of transmission is when large groups of people gather in the open air, right? So we know that large groups of people gathering together is clearly a bad thing. That that that. Um, causes virus transmission. But we also know that the open air is a great antidote to virus transmission, that sort of dilution effect of the, the, the droplets that come from your breath, the, the dilution effect in the open air is, is huge, right? So, so those things are gonna sort of tend to cancel each other out. And so uh, undoubtedly there are transmission events that would happen in the open air in large crowds. But in the context of a city like New York, um, where we had quite dramatically suppressed the number of viral infections to low levels, that correspondingly, there's going to be low levels of transmission even when um, crowds gather. But if you, if you sort of continue to do that over long periods of time and then allow those crowds to gather indoors, then, of course, we'll be right back uh, where, we, where we started. 
And so, um, you know, it might be, for example, that you could say, all right, when, when viral infection levels are below a certain rate, then it's pretty safe to have large outdoor gatherings of protesters. If, however, you're in a situation as we were in New York um, a few months ago, where, you know, perhaps 10% of the population were infected at one time, then it would be absolutely crazy to allow th those uh, gatherings to, to take place. So, but th these are all things that we're sort of finding out in real time. And so when, when one thinks about, for example, I know it's a politically charged question, to what extent did, did protests uh, cause um, or gatherings of any kind, be they left-wing, right-wing, you know, bikers, uh, whatever group, whether the gatherings of those people caused a worsening of the epidemic? Um, the answer is uh, almost certainly yes, but the degree to which that, that yes is true is, is going to vary hugely, okay? And depending on what the baseline level of infection is. If you have a crowd of 100,000 people and one person's infected, you know, they're not going to infect 100,000 people, right? Um, especially Definitely. if it's in the open air. But if 30% of them are infected, then there's a very good chance that you're going to, um, going to very dramatically worsen things. This, these sort of things work on an exponential function rather than, than a, a linear function. And so the types of behavior that, that should be tolerable or not tolerable very much depend on the baseline level of infection. Regarding the severity of lockdowns, um, so, you know, in New York City, we live in apartment buildings, um, very dense population, um, very high prevalence of infection in mid-March. There, lockdown absolutely was appropriate and had dramatic effects uh, uh, in terms of bringing the virus under control. You know, if in the the slums of a, a large city in Brazil, for example, where um, you know people living on top of each other, um, basically, and really don't have the option to spend their days locked in their um, shacks, for want of a, a better word. Uh, you know, imposing a lockdown there is, is it'll have an effect for sure. But my suspicion is the effect would not be not be so great given the you know the just the live different um um living Lifestyle. circumstances and you know people if they're for in that circumstance if they're fortunate enough to have a job um you know not going to work just may not be an option in the same way it is for uh, you know a manhattanite like myself um i can work from home no problem um so these things are difficult and when you put politics on top of epidemiology and virology, it's, it becomes very, very challenging. As a virologist, I know that the less people you interact with, the less virus transmission there's, there's going to be. So I absolutely strongly advocate for lockdowns and, and contact tracing and so on. Um, but I understand that um, that has a cost. And it's a cost that's not borne by all of us equally. Definitely. And, you know, you were speaking about the different, because of the baseline of um, infections 
people and how if there's a lot of infected people then it's not really the the yes that you were talking about if it really if it really will worsen the situation that yes will be incrementally um worse if there's a lot of people because you said it like that but it's true because if you just one and it's just a, a bunch of people it's obvious that that single person won't infect the rest yeah but it seems a bit unfair from a just from a normal citizen point of view that you have um that being said do you then have so strict measures just for instance take going back to school and you mm -hmm. have different really strict measures which are being applied in the same time span and in the same time with the same baseline of um infected people so you're saying like it seems to infer just how um these different protests may have been um, accepted and people have gathered in the streets, etc. But you then can't have a... Then you can't really get your mask off in a s simple terrace. So it's... Or those kind of really slight details which are being monitored in a really strict way, which I understand because they, they may have their own explanation and I'm sure they, they have because they... That's what experts are saying. But then you have like those other protests in which people are, some people are being, mm, you know, um, correct and they're wearing their mask and different, um, and they're sticking to their security measures, but others aren't. And even though the, the contact or no, the contact, the infected level of people is slow, it's not really high, it is being accepted. But maybe in the same, situation in a simple terrace you're just um having something to eat you're think let's say um in a way really being monitored in a really really strict way i don't know if i'm making my my point across correctly yeah well you, i think you're getting you're getting into a, a political question now which um you know i I mean, I mean it, how it's... to how to police a protest, right? Is not not something that I'm especially educated on. Obviously, when I see a protest on TV and large numbers of people are not wearing masks, I think, yeah, that is not good. That's not good. Um, probably, you know, I don't know for sure, but probably that's that's not great. Um, on the other hand, you know. Uh, I mean, here's a trivial example. So um, at the weekends, I'd try and get my family out of the city. We get in the car and we drive out and we go hiking, right? And we we walk along trails uh, in a, um, on a mountain and we carry a mask with us. We don't wear it all the time. But if we see mm -hmm. someone approaching us, we put our mask on That's and we it. keep we keep three or four meters apart. You know, in that situation, the chances of my mask actually doing something are infinitesimally small, but I, I still do it because, I, you know, it's, it's almost become a matter of etiquette. Um, mm -hmm. There's not really a scientific basis for, um, for saying that me wearing a mask while I pass by someone on the other side of the path three meters away 
Um, there's no scientific basis for me thinking that my mask will protect them or protect me. But, you know, it's just, I want to err on, on the side of caution. And I know I want to err on the side of caution by a very large margin. Um, and it, it's probably partly because I'm a virologist. Right? <laughs> um, I understand that people come to different views on that, but I, I, you know, I would very much rather everybody erred um, way on the side of caution, okay? Because if everybody did that, then we would get rid of this virus. Definitely. Um, That's how it is. You you know, it's not nice to wear a mask, but it's a hell of a lot better than wearing a ventilator. It is what it is, yeah. And I think you're you're completely right there, Paul. So, I mean, it's been some time since since I said it was the last question. Yes. (laughs) I've enjoyed talking to you. Same, Paul. Thank you for coming along with us. It's been a a great pleasure for us. And I think it's really been an enriching conversation you have with an expert, again, in the field, even though you may (laughs) not think you're an expert because it's a novel thing, which I understand. Well, you got got me a little bit off my my field, but that's okay. (laughs) I, I guess, I guess. Well, I mean, that's always good because sometimes um, getting people of how, because, you know, you have a, a basis and that basis, sometimes you can extrapolate that basis into different topics and sometimes simply don't, which I, I really appreciate you um, ans- answering some of those questions, which I know may have not been really, um, let's say, really scientifically easy to answer yeah because they there are some questions which are still up in the air even in this moment in time but even though that despite that being the case i really think you at least for me i'm sure the audience will think the same enlightened the different um situation and the, the current situation and the different outcomes that can happen in the foreseeable future so thank you again paul it's been a great pleasure for me. Very welcome. Thank you. So that's all for today, folks. Um, it's been a pretty long one this time around, but I really think those were some really wise words and it really had a really deep um, message behind. That being said, as always, this is your host, Alice Martinez. See you in the next one. Signing off.